Heavenly Father, we, your people, gather here this morning in awe of all you've done for us. We praise you, Father, for the gift of life, and we thank you for the mercy in sustaining us each day. We know through your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have a God who knows us and understands us. You know intimately our weaknesses, temptations, and difficulties. And yet, while knowing our sin, you still forgive us. How incredible. Lord, we praise and thank you. Lord, you're the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And this morning, we pray for peace and comfort to Bill Hay and Jamie Shields as they battle Parkinson's disease. Father, please extend your all-powerful and merciful hand and look favorably upon Bill and Jamie in their time of need. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this weekend's Covenant Youth Retreat. We pray it will be a time where you grow within the hearts of our young people. Father, move within their hearts, and may they be rest assured of your unconditional love for them. Thank you for all of our staff as they guide them and keep them safe. Father, please draw near to Hunter and Caddy Worley as they grieve the loss of Hunter's sister. Draw near to them, and may they take rest in you in this time of sorrow. And God, we pray for Bob and Andrea Burnham, serving you in Romania. Father, defend them as they share the gospel with the people of Romania and the many Ukrainians taking refuge there. May your kingdom and its people prosper there. Lord, we lift up these specific prayers and those we keep quietly in our hearts. Your people delight in your word and seek you this morning. For you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you haven't heard about the death of Charles White this week. No, I don't mean Covenant President member Charles White. He's sitting right here and Mary is with him. I mean Charles White, the former tailback of the University of Southern California. Uh, He won a national championship in 1978. He won a Heisman. In 1977, then he went and got drafted by the Cleveland Browns, and he also was a running back for the Los Angeles Rams and uh, had a, a massive career. But anyway, he, he died this past week, and I, I would have missed it, but my friend Will sent me and some other friends a text about Charles White, NFL running about Charles White's death, and uh, what he was remembering was that it was the first poster Charles White's poster was the first poster of an NFL running back that he taped on his wall. And then he would tape 31 more NFL running back posters on his wall. He had 32 posters of NFL running backs on his wall. And since I know Will, it's not surprising. He really enjoyed watching grown men run over grown men. Like that's just sort of like sort of what his soul says is good. And, and so, you know, he found it glorious and beautiful. After the first service, someone came up to me and said, you know, I know whose poster I put on my wall. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, Dave Driscoll. So I was like, okay, that's great. I'm not sure if Catherine has posters of Dave on, their, on the wall, but uh, I wonder if we think about it for a minute, if, if you could do that, if you, you know, Will was 10 when he started putting posters on his wall, 10-year-old uh, young little boy, but if you had a special room in your house and you could put a poster up of someone whom you want to emulate, someone you find impressive, glorious, beautiful, who would it be? 
We all have people whom we find very impressive. We all have people whom we want to emulate. We have people who we think very highly of and being around them makes us want to be like them. Today's passage is about the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ on a mountain. And here's what the passage is about. It's about the unveiling of his true glory. When you see him as he's offered in the passage today, what you and I are gonna see is he is someone who is worthy to be glorified, worthy to be magnified, worthy to be emulated, to be imitated, but he's more than that. And so I wanna look at the passage with you today. We're gonna begin reading uh, at the end of chapter eight. This is the end of the passage that John preached last week, but 8.38 and 9.1, though that's part of last week's passage, it's really important background for understanding the passage we're gonna read today. So if you would, read along with me in your Bible in Mark 8.38 and following or in your worship guide on page 14. Here's the gospel of Mark. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before him. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how was it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things? And be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray pray with me. Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus that through the power of the Spirit and through the clarity of your word, that we would see the glory of your son, our savior. Help us see his glory and rest ourselves in him. Help us see that he is beautiful and make us desire to be with him and be like him. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so today we're looking at the transfiguration, which is Mark 9, 2 and following. But those two verses we read before that from last week's passage are really important because they remind us of the context. Uh, The first eight chapters of Mark's gospel are really resting with the question, who is this? Now, we, the readers of Mark's gospel, we didn't live in that tension because Mark chapter one, verse one says that Jesus, this is the good news about Jesus, who is the Christ and the son of God. He's the Messiah, the king they've been waiting for, and he's God's own son. We're told that from the very beginning, but the people living in the narrative, they didn't have that clarity at first. And so the first part of the gospel, everyone's trying to figure out who is this And we see in all kinds of unique ways that Jesus is the son of God, who is the Messiah of Israel, though you never hear him say words quite clearly to that effect, though it's clearly what Mark wants us to believe about Jesus. So that's the first part. As you get to the middle of chapter eight and move forward, you know who Jesus is because Jesus is walking with his disciples and the crowds are around. He's up in the north and he says to his disciples, hey, who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? And as you remember, the disciples say back, well, uh, some say you're the John, John the Baptist. That's a little weird because he baptized you. Some say you're Elijah, the great and final prophet everyone's waiting for. And some think you're a little lower. You're just kind of one of the prophets, you know, another new prophet on the scene. And Jesus turns to them. This was in last week's passage and says, but you, who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter makes that great confession. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the king we're waiting for. And as soon as Jesus hears that word, he affirms it and he begins to teach them what? That he is going to be rejected. He will be mistreated. He will die and on the third day rise again. You remember what Peter did. Peter's like, wait, 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 wait. This is not going to work. You're the king we've been waiting for. And Peter rebukes Jesus and Jesus pulls him aside and tells him, puts him in his place. All right. So that's the context here that leads to this. So Mark 8, 38 is really important to understand our passage today Jesus is speaking and he says, not only is it going to be like that for me, I will be rejected, mistreated, crucified and rising on the third day. Then Jesus says, and it's going to be similar like that for you. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And then this gets to this part. Now, who's ever ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, that's that first generation first century of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes. This is really important in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Here's what Jesus is talking about. And everyone understood it. Jesus there is saying, I'm going to go away. I told you I'm going to die and rise again. I'm going to go away. But when I come back, I'm coming in the glory of the father and with the holy angels. In other words, I'm coming back as judge of the whole earth. And this is what everyone would have understood. Everyone will see that. Jesus is saying the great day of the Lord is coming in judgment and I'm bringing the judgment. I'm going to come back in the glory of my father and the holy angels. And that's talking about the great eschatological, the great last day, the great day of judgment. Something everyone will see because nobody can escape it. But look what he says next in nine verse one. And he said to them, truly, he says, amen, at the beginning of the sentence, pretty firm. 
Amen, I'm saying to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So everyone's going to see me come in the Father's glory with the angels as the judge of all the world. But some are going to see a revelation of my glory before that. Before you die, he's saying to those around him, that would have been the disciples in the crowd. Some of you are going to witness the kingdom of God coming in power after it's come in power before you die. And so a lot of people think this second verse, nine verse one is also about the second coming, but it can't be because of the second coming, all eyes will see him. Jesus is talking about some other type of glory, the arrival of his glory. That's not the second coming, but it's before that because all will see the eventual glory of the second coming. But some, even before they died, will see his glory after it's come with power, the kingdom of God, after it's come with power. So hold that in your minds and we'll see how that works in our passage today. Well, that leads us to the transfiguration. So the, some of those who, were, who heard Jesus' words, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, three disciples, up a high mountain. Anytime God's people go up a high mountain in the Bible, something big is about to happen. And they're the ones that witness the transfiguration. I'm saying that's a partial fulfillment of nine verse one, that some before they taste death will see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. But there's more than that. And we'll see it in our passage today. So here's the three things I want you to see with me today from nine, two and following. Let's look at the glory. Secondly, let's listen to the heavenly voice. Tell us about the glory. And then let's linger over the mysterious hiddenness of the glory. First of all, let's look at the glory that's revealed here in nine verses two, three, and four. After six days, after saying, some of you, before you die, will see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Here's what that means. The meekness and the humility of his humanity is pulled back. He's still fully human, but what's revealed is his true divine glory. All of a sudden, what they're doing is they're seeing who he really and truly is. Jesus is the son of God. And for a moment, all of that glory is bursting forth and it's evident that they're able to see it. Peter, James, and John get a glimpse of the glory of the son of God here in the transfiguration. He's literally transfigured before them. They don't see him as they normally see him, meek and lowly and humble as he truly was. They see him as he always has been and always will be, bright, shining with glory. That's the transfiguration. For a moment, they see the real glory he's always had. But I want you to see not only that, but look at the glorious garments. Verse three, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, this is a common way for people to show that things are divine or exceedingly holy. For example, here's what Daniel seven verse nine says about God being described as the ancient of days. Here it is. And the ancient of days took his seat. Daniel's having a heavenly vision. The ancient of days took his seat and his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. So when Jesus is transfigured, his disciples, three of them see his true eternal glory, but then his 
outward, his clothing are also radiating with light, with whiteness that no one could manufacture. And what's that saying? He is divine. You're looking at a very, very holy person. So he's transfigured. You see his glorious clothing, but also you see some glorified people. Notice in the passage, next in verse four, it tells us that all of a sudden Elijah and Moses show up. Well, that's significant, and we'll see more about it later in the passage. But first of all, do you remember how Elijah ended his life? He was carried up on chariots of fire into heavenly glory. He's not glorified like a God, but he passes into glory. So God's people remembered Elijah as one who had been glorified. But also Moses is there. Now, you don't read this in the Old Testament, but there are a lot of Jewish texts Uh, like the assumption of Moses that talked about Moses having experience like Elijah um, already existing in God's presence glorified. And so what a first century person would have seen here with Jesus' transfiguration, his glory bursting forth, his very white clothes, heavenly clothing, and then two glorified saints, Moses and Elijah, uh, the disciples would have said, okay, this is a very, very holy moment. Something very, very glorious is happening in our presence. And that they would have been right. Uh, you see his transfiguration, his glorious garments, and then glorious, glorified saints. Hold on to that. Hold on to those images of the revelation of the unique glory of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. And then in verse five, I want us to listen to the heavenly voice, what it tells us about the glory. Uh, There's another voice that you can contrast in verse five. It's the impetuous Peter. Uh, Peter speaks up and is like, Rabbi, this is great. Look, Moses is here. Elijah's here. You're here. Let's build three tabernacles. Okay. What's going on here? Now, first of all, uh, Peter is always the impetuous one. As someone said after the first service, uh, he could never stand uh, a quiet silence. He's just the guy that's going to fill the space with words. And that's who he is here. But I want you to understand what he's thinking. He sees Moses and Elijah with Jesus, who he's just confessed is the long awaited Messiah, the Christ. And so Peter's like, hey, the new Exodus has arrived. We've been waiting for Elijah. I just saw him. He's right here. And so Peter is thinking that the glory of the day of judgment is coming for God's covenant people. And that day is arriving now. And basically what Peter thinks is, oh, it's arrived on a mountain as it often does through the biblical story. It's arriving on the mountain and now it's gonna spread from us right here over the whole earth and the good people are going up and the bad people are going down. Let's go. And one thing that has Peter very excited is there's no more talk right now about a cross, a death, suffering, misery. No, if Elijah's here, the great day's here, let's build some tabernacles and let's let the glory spread from here because we're in it. And when for once, Jesus doesn't have to correct Peter because a voice bursts out of the heavens. Peter said it because he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. Verse seven, and then a cloud overshadowed them 
and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, before we get that quote, do you remember we just read Exodus 24? And there were four references to the, the cloud descending on Mount Sinai and nine references to them being one at the foot of the mountain and going up the mountain and being on the mountain and Yahweh is there. Exodus 24 is the classical theophany passage. Theophany means an appearance of God. Yahweh met with Moses at the very top of the mountain and, and They entered the cloud. Moses entered into the cloud and that's where Yahweh was. And so here on this mountain, you have a cloud on a very high mountain overshadowing them and you hear the father's voice. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So here's what I want to understand. This passage too is a theophany. This passage is about the appearance of God on earth with the cloud on a very high mountain. And I want you to know it's a theophany, not just because the father is speaking. It's a theophany because the son is there. And that's what the transfiguration is about. His eternal glory, his true glory is being revealed. And it's theophanic, an appearance of God for that reason as well. But the father corrects Peter. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they were by themselves only with Jesus. In other words, Moses and Elijah are gone. Think about that context. Hopefully you can see that the whole story of the Bible is crashing together on the top of this mountain. This is like a second Sinai. It's this great theophany scene, but also Moses is there. The great lawgiver, the one who received the tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. He was there before he was gone. And Elijah, the great prophet who also met with Yahweh on Mount Sinai, he was there. Jesus is in the presence of the consummate lawgiver through Yahweh and the consummate prophet. And what does the father say? Not listen to the law and the prophets and my son, which of course, that's all great. But Jesus says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's someone greater than the law. There's someone greater than the prophets that all of the law pointed to the arrival of this one and all the prophets pointed to this day and it's arrived on a mountain and it's glorious. This is what the father is saying. This is the one I want you to listen to. This is the one I want you to pay attention to. All the law and the prophets were pointing you to him. And so that leads us to the third thing already that I want us to linger over the mystery of the hiddenness of this glory for a minute. Because look, the glory's there and three of them saw it on the mountain, in the cloud, including with Moses and Elijah. And I want you to know the father said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You could have seen the glory. You could have heard the father describe the glory. And as soon as Moses and Elijah leave and the disciples are there with Jesus, they begin to go down the mountain. And what is the topic that gets brought up? Look at it with me in verses nine and following. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. You know what that means? He expects them to remember what he just told them. Before the transfiguration, he had said, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And then I'll rise again on the third day. He expects them to remember that, but they are really bewildered and confused. Don't tell anybody until the son of man had risen from the dead. Verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves 
questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. I mean, you talk about being bewildered. They're like, I just, I can't do the math on this. But this is what's interesting. Peter and the disciples, they think Jesus is having a math problem. So this is the question they asked. Look at it with me in verse 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? You know what they're doing there, don't you? See, everyone believed that a second Elijah was going to come. And after that, that Elijah would come and prepare everything for God to return to Zion and for the restoration of his people. And then there'd be the great and final day of judgment. And so what had just happened? They'd just been on the mountain in a cloud with Moses and Elijah. And see what they're saying to Jesus? Uh, Jesus, what? Hmm. Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Right? And so what they're basically trying to do is they're trying to help Jesus do the math. Uh, Jesus, we are just with Elijah. So what comes next is the glory. The kingdom comes in glory and power now because we were just, it's Elijah and then the kingdom with glory and power. And so that's how they're thinking. They're trying to help Jesus figure out what's going on. Surely none of us are ever tempted <laughs> to help the Lord understand our circumstances or what his plan ought to be. But Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. That's right. Elijah comes and he kicks off things, great eschatological events, and eventually all things are restored. That's right. That's right. But here's what Jesus is basically about to say to them, and we need to hear it too. Jesus is saying, you know what? You guys have mastered parts of the story, but there's some very central parts of the story that you keep leaving out. And so Jesus, who's just been magnified and glorified, and his glory has been radiating, and the Father says, this is my son. Listen to him. These words are therefore quite important. So he asked them a question, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see where Jesus brings the story back? Lord, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first and then, then all things restored? That's right, but don't forget this part. Why do the scriptures say that the son of man, the one who will inherit kingdoms, the one who will be magnified and gloried, why will that one suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I tell you, John the Baptist, sorry, Elijah has already come. He meant to John the Baptist and they did whatever they wanted to do with him. And that was written about as well. And so here's what Jesus is doing. He's directing their attention to what he must do. He is the glorified son. He is the true son, but he will stick to his role and do what the father has sent him to do. He will not be carried off uh, that task. So think about it with me for just a minute. Maybe you heard uh, in the father's words at, in the, at the transfiguration in the cloud on Mount Sinai, on this mountain. Maybe you remember this is my beloved son, listen to him. Does that remind you of the father's words of the baptism? That's a great connection. Uh, Jesus goes in, John the Baptist, that great and final Elijah is baptizing people, a baptism for the repentance of sins. And the people are coming out. They're all coming from all around. They're coming out to uh, John the Baptist, that final Elijah in the Jordan and 
confessing their sins. And Jesus comes out and submits the baptism of John. And when Jesus comes out and identifies with God's covenant people at their worst, because they're rebellious sinners, because they need forgiveness, what happens? The heavens open and the father says this, no, says you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's a really important connection. At the baptism, the father speaks and says, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And there's one other quote like that in the gospel of Mark. It's in the 15th chapter when Jesus is crucified. And this is an example of the seeing the kingdom of God come in power After it's come in power, here's why Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross. And what happens? It's not the father's voice, but a Roman centurion points to him and says, surely this man is the son of God. A great parallel with what the father says at the baptism and what the father says at the transfiguration. But now this Messiah who is treated with contempt is hanging on the cross. And the Roman centurion says, Surely this man is the son of God. Here's the pattern. I want you to see that as soon as Jesus begins talking about his death and resurrection, his, the rest of his life is basically between two mountains, from the mountain of the transfiguration to the Mount Calvary, where he's crucified. And just look at the contrasts. On the Mount of the Transfiguration, uh, Jesus is shining with bright, heavenly light. But when Jesus is on Calvary, hanging on a cross, darkness falls on the earth for three hours at the bright middle of the day from noon to three. Brightness at the Mount of Transfiguration, but darkness on the earth when he's crucified. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, his clothes are shining, but on Mount Calvary, his clothes are stripped from him. Jesus on the mountain of the transfiguration, he's with two glorified saints. But when he's on the Mount Calvary, he's hung and crucified between two criminals. On the mountain of transfiguration, he hears the father's voice and they do. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. But when Jesus is hanging on Calvary on the cross, he cries out to the father. But there is no reply, no voice from the father. Why is it like this? The Lord Jesus Christ truly has come to be crucified in the place of the wicked and rebellious, all those who had put their trust in him. This is why the centurion's voice is so important. What heaven has always known and it's revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, the earth may now hear its salvation that's offered to you and me in this son. This is how Jesus fulfills the law of Moses and the prophets. He fulfills them by suffering in the place of the wicked, all those wicked ones who trust in him. Isn't it amazing that we have the story of the transfiguration? And Peter's weakness and impetuousness, everyone knows that Peter's the primary witness behind Mark's gospel. He's not afraid to tell you, I blew that one. I completely misunderstood what was really going on. I couldn't get it through my head that the Messiah had to suffer and die in my place. But after the Messiah dies and is crucified in his place, he's willing to tell you his whole story. 
He's not afraid to tell you that he blew it. He's not afraid to tell you he put his foot in his mouth. He's not afraid to tell you later in the gospel that he denied Jesus three times. He's not afraid to admit the worst about himself because God's own son in our humanity died in his place on the cross. It's created a brand new freedom for Peter. He will now magnify the glory of Jesus Christ. He's not afraid to tell you that he broke, that he blew it. The requirements and the threats of the law are met in Jesus Christ. He's the amen to every prophetic promise. The righteous king, who is the all-glorious son of God, is also the suffering servant who came to give his life as a ransom for you and me. If you see Jesus in his glory, his self-giving love, then one thing you do is you want to run to him for salvation, absolutely. And also, you want to be like him. You want to magnify his glory in your own life, not in some kind of law keeping, make myself better, but in like deep and rich love for he who gave his life for us. And we won't do that in our own strength, but no, by his promised grace, even in his perpetual graciousness to us as he nourishes the people that he loves. Let's pray and meet him at his table. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you sent your son for us. Lord Jesus Christ, how thankful we are that you, the eternal son and the long-awaited righteous king, came as the suffering servant for us. Now, turn our eyes upon you. Grant us great confidence and joy in your presence because your work for us is perfect. We praise you that you were stripped for us on the cross that we might be clothed with your righteousness. Give us confidence in you now, even as we come to eat and drink. In Jesus' name, amen.